What is the Gen AI opportunity in tax? Here are some thoughts from EY and Real-Time Insights. Tax has always been an area of heavy data and heavy rules. Generative AI opens up an opportunity for tax professionals to use natural language that they're comfortable using to query the data, to ask different questions, and provide new business insights. Learn more at ey.com. Hey there, it's Tracy Alloway. And Jill Weisenthal. We are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast, and we want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you are not going to want to miss. The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives. Like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment. And dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch it on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Thoughts Podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, we are at the Future Proof Conference in the glorious Huntington Beach, and we have a very, very special guest. This is something that we recorded live on stage on a beach. We've never done that before. Never on a beach before. Truly extraordinary moment. Beautiful Huntington Beach. It really is uh, kind of like a festival here. And this was a really fun conversation to do. Yep. So we are speaking with Bill Gross, the Bond King himself. Obviously, he has a lot of thoughts on the state of the bond market now. But we're also going to talk to him about his career and how investing and trading debt has actually changed over the decades. Yeah. Really fun conversation. Take a listen. Bill, you... uh. You brought out the sunglasses, huh? I did. It's been 10 years. Uh, last time it didn't work too well, but... Uh, try it again. Yeah, we'll try it again. It'll be good this time. <laughs> um, I want to start out with, you know, we're in the midst of what seems like <clears throat> another interest rate cycle of some sort. No one really knows how long it's going to last. There aren't that many people around nowadays who have lived through different interest rate cycles. And you actually started your career in the 1970s in an era of stagflation, in an era where the Fed was hiking. We didn't have derivatives to hedge duration risk. We didn't have Bloomberg terminals. We had Quotrons. What was that like? Well, it was much different. Um, you know, bear markets are not as much fun as, as bull markets, <laughs> uh, depending upon your position. But, um, you know, interest rates got to... 15% in 81, 82, somewhere, somewhere in there. And the interesting thing is, is that um, they were almost self-hedging because the, the duration of a 30-year treasury at 15% was about four and a half to five years. It was, it was like a five-year today or close to it. And so at 15% with a very short duration, it meant that uh, interest rates could go up to 18% and you still wouldn't lose money. It was a it was a golden opportunity. When you think back and, you know, obviously, as Tracy mentioned, you started at PIMCO in the early 70s. And so there were several years of bond bear market before the great bull market, which we'll talk about. Um, what did you learn then about like surviving in a bear market for an asset class? Well, um, you know, it depends on who you're investing for. If you're looking for a a client and, and trying to grow a business, um, then you have to be aware uh, that relative performance is important, but it, if it's a significant bear market, that absolute performance is crucial as well. Uh, investors and clients will just leave no matter how good you were relative to the market. So um, I, I, think, I think that was key back then, um, relative performance and then you know, stepping on the accelerator in 81, 82 and, and buying a secular bull market. And it was a bull market. So nowadays, we kind of take for granted that people 
actively trade bonds. You buy and sell them. But when you started out, that wasn't the case at all. Walk us through the thought process and the opportunity that you saw in trading bonds. Right. Well, th there were no real computers, um, no clearinghouse uh, overnight uh, types of trades. You, as a matter of fact, at PIMCO, which was owned by Pacific Mutual downtown LA, um, we had a billion dollars in a vault. And um, I, w I was hired uh, not for PIMCO, but really for private placements. And uh, one of my jobs, 25% of the $11,000 I made each year uh, was to go down into the vault and to actually clip coupons. You've, you've heard of coupon clipping? Um, I did a lot of that. Uh, <laughs> and, and back in the day, uh, because the bonds were in the vault, it was, it was pretty hard to get them to New York. It took two or three days to get them to New York. Uh, like I say, there were, there were IBM 360s, but nothing in terms of connectivity. And so, um, you know, the, the physical trading of bonds uh, and stocks uh, was was very difficult and uh, allowed for uh, for illiquid markets. Talk to us more about you know you mentioned eighty one and then you like pressed down the accelerator and rode this incredible wave right this incredible roughly I guess forty year basically bull market in bonds. But talk to us you know if you look at your career and you think you know, the bond king like. Talk to about the role of timing and how crucial that was. And when you think about the success that you had at PIMCO, et cetera, like just the being there at the right time and the role of, uh, I guess, a little bit of t luck. Right. Well, it, um, the key at PIMCO uh, for us at PIMCO, it wasn't just me. We had a lot of smart people and more and more as, as time went on. Uh, but the the key was, was really a book that... Um, I forget who wrote it. Uh, it was called Investing for the Long Term. It was it was about stocks, uh, but it mentioned the long term, the secular movement of uh, financial instruments, uh, as opposed to cyclical, as opposed to short-term trading. And um, it it seemed to me that uh, the bane of an investor is is emotion, and and I'm the same way. I I, I never thought of myself as a good trader. Uh, I mean, if NVIDIA, you know, hits 500, uh, I'm just as likely to buy it as to, to sell it and then regret it the, the next day. Uh, but in any case, if you take a longer term view and, and not go to sleep, but if you take a longer term view and know that um, forces in the economy, inflation, demographics, um, globalization, if you know that those are working in the favor of either a bull or a bear, um, then, then sticking with a, what we called a three to five year forecast as opposed to a three to five day forecast was the key. And, it, and it, does it hurt mentally when you're long and you should be short for a short period of time? Yeah, it does, but you just, you have to, you have to stay with that mind frame of a longer term secular market. How did the way you trade it actually change as PIMCO grew larger? Because I imagine, you know, at, at one point, PIMCO has hundreds of billions of dollars under management, trillions even. And there are pros and cons to that, right? Like you get first allocation of debt, but maybe it's hard to hug your benchmark because you are gigantic. And that's true. So, uh, you know, as we grew larger and larger, clients would always say, "Well, uh, how can you keep doing this at a uh, hundred billion, or two hundred billion, or five hundred billion? Uh, because your size, uh, you know, is prohibitive in, in terms of liquidity." Um, it wasn't because we, we found the futures market, we found the foreign markets, uh, we found. Um, markets that that added liquidity, and you know, act, actually, we'd we'd stay in this trading room, and this this is not a good joke for for now, but I'll tell it anyway. Um, <laughs> that uh, the client uh, the client would say, "How can you do it?" And then we'd tell them how we did it, and then we'd go back in the trading room, and 
and look at each other and they say, you know how we do it? We just add a zero to the ticket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that simple. I just add a zero to the ticket. I, I, I mean, I know we're gonna talk. We're gonna, you know, at some point, like talk about this current market a little bit. But maybe as like a sort of seg, you know, obviously there were a lot of in the inflation of the late '70s and early '80s. There were a lot of false dawns, right, where they thought they had defeated inflation, and the Fed was like, okay, we're gonna like. Uh, we're going to be able to bring rates down, and then inflation shot up, and they, it took them a long time before they like it was good for good. Does it feel today when like similar to that, or do you feel like does it feel like the late seventies this inflation, or does it feel like substantively different what we've experienced over the last few years? Well, the late the late seventies was influenced by seventy one seventy two when Nixon went off the gold standard, and it was easy. Er, and then easy for central banks to print money. Uh, there was also OPEC, and once it got going, it was hard to stop. Um, you know, I, I think the Fed and other central bankers are more aware now. Hopefully, they they are. They weren't two years ago, um, so it, it's hard to make that claim. But um, it's it's a market these days that can be controlled to some extent with higher interest rates, but not, not necessarily, not necessarily. And we're, we're seeing that right now because the, you know, the, the real five-year note, um, the real five-year note in terms of interest rates was, was bottomed at uh, minus 200 basis points. It's now a plus 250. It's gone up 450 basis points in the last year and a half, uh, which is incredible. And to my way of thinking, when we start talking about stocks, it's a, a definitely a negative influence in terms of valuations and PEs, but the market doesn't seem to recognize it. Wait, when you say the economy can't be controlled through interest rates as much as it once maybe could be, can you expound on that? Why is that the case? Well, you've, you've got You've got foreign markets, which uh, didn't exist really in size back then, and and they have an influence on the on the treasury market. Although it's it's usually the other way around, and and pretty decent uh, uh, size. Um, and you've you've got um, you've got demographics that are important now with the boomers, myself, and others um, that are. Uh, spending their savings and that uh, has a significant effect in terms of supply relative to demand. Uh, you didn't have that demographic influence uh, back then. And then, um, you know, globalization uh, crept up in the last 10 years or so, made for higher productivity, and now it's going the other way. So um, there are just other forces to think about, and 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 that's what Powell is doing. He's trying to he's trying to gauge the appropriate real interest rate that will produce two percent inflation, which I, I think is a is is a dream. But uh, that's what he says he's going to do, and that's what he tries to do, and that's why you know Fed funds are uh, five and a quarter to five and a half. Uh, we'll see what happens. What are three key considerations for financial services firms following the Biden administration's executive order on AI? Here are some thoughts from EY. In light of the White House executive order on the safe, secure, and trustworthy development and use of AI, financial services firms need to demonstrate three key capabilities. The first is that they have an enterprise-wide AI governance framework aligned to industry practices, including the NIST guidelines. Firms also need to be able to demonstrate effectiveness of this governance program. The second core capability is that institutions should have a holistic view of each AI asset, including all of its uses, impacts, risks, and controls. This holistic view naturally requires significant cross-functional coordination. Finally, institutions should be providing relevant reporting to boards and senior management around their AI use cases and effectiveness of their mitigating controls. Learn more at ey.com. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip. 
Who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get our way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts a lot of people think that uh rate cuts are coming, that we're at some like abnormally high level of interest rates. And it's only a matter of time before like the Fed is able to normalize. And by normalize, what they mean is cut to something that maybe would be more familiar in the, not, you know, not go back to ZERP, but something that may be more familiar several years ago. Do you see that in the cards? Like, do you think like the Fed is going to be able to cut sometime soon and rates are going to come back down? Yeah, I don't think so unless uh, recession uh, comes with a capital R, and it doesn't seem to be doing that. Let me give you my valuation metric for the 10-year, the 10-year at four and a quarter for treasuries. Um, so Powell wants to get Fed funds down to two. Let's say it's successful. Let, let's say Powell is successful, which would be seemingly very bullish for the market. And if Fed funds are at two, and then the, the R star, as they call it, uh, you know, the real Fed funds rate would be a two and a half. But then there's a term premium, Joe, um, a term premium that historically has been about 130 basis points over Fed funds. And we're talking about the term premium of the 10 versus the short term rate. And, and why is there a premium for a 10 versus a short term rate? Because it's riskier, because uh, it goes up and down and you can lose money, whereas you can't with a bill. So let's just say that Powell is successful to gets to two, our stars at two and a half, term premium three and a half, close to four. Um, I, I mean, at four and a quarter, we're basically anticipating the, the Fed being successful and, and uh, containing inflation at a 2% level. And if he doesn't, then um, we're, we certainly haven't got a bull market and we certainly don't have a, a context where Powell and the Fed you know, are likely to cut interest rates, I, I, I just don't see it. it. It It's not that I'm significantly bearish, although we can, we can talk about that in a second, uh, but uh, four and a quarter is not a bad level for now as long as inflation keeps going down. If it doesn't, then no, no. I'm gonna take you up on, on the bearishness the here, yeah. offer in, in a second, but since you mentioned the term premium, when you look at the yield curve right now, the fact that it's inverted, what do you see? What's that telling you? Because I feel like there's a group of people who will say this time definitely isn't different. It's a traditional indicator of recession. And then there are a lot of people who will say times have changed. Uh, the term premium is a lot lower than it used to be. Maybe that's what's causing the inversion. Well, I think it is. Um, but that, that's another way of saying that the term premium, which uh, appears to be close to zero, uh, is wrong. Um, but, but I've been baffled by the, you know, the length and the extent of the, uh, the negative curve. Uh, I mean, we had, we had one in 79, 80, 81, um, and it seemed to work for Volcker. Um, doesn't seem to be working that well now. And, and, and I think Perhaps one of the reasons is that fiscal policy has been so expansive. I, I mean, we're, we're looking at a $2 trillion deficit this year. Last year it was uh, three, three and a half during COVID. And so, you know, when you have fiscal policy in, in such a deficit and people spending money, um, it's like Bernanke. Remember Bernanke with a helicopter? I'll be damned, but. That's what we did. We, we threw money out of a helicopter. Uh, we threw trillions of dollars out of a helicopter. And so the last of it is, is just now being spent. And um, I, I think the reason why 
term premiums are so low is, is that the economy is good and people have money to, uh, to invest. All right, I'm going to jump. What do you, you said, you hinted, or maybe that you're, there's something that you're bearish on. What are you bearish on? You mean in terms of markets? I don't know. I, you said uh, bear, not bearish, and then you're like, oh, I'll get back to that. Oh, oh, well, in terms of bonds, so, so we have a deficit of uh, close to $2 trillion. Uh, the outstanding treasury market is about $33 trillion. I've read on uh, Bloomberg. And other Very reputable outlet. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for the plug. And other sources that uh, basically say about uh, 30% of the existing outstanding treasuries, that's $33 trillion, so $10 trillion have to be rolled over in the next 12 months, including the $2 trillion that, uh, that's new. So that's, that's $12 trillion worth of treasuries that have to be financed over the next 12 months. And, and who's going to buy them at these levels? Well, the... Uh, some people are buying them, but uh, it just seems to be a lot of money. And when you, when you add on to that, that uh, Powell is uh, doing quantitative tightening, as you know, and that theoretically is a trillion dollars worth of, of uh, reduced, uh, well, a, a trillion dollars worth of added supply, I guess. And so it, it just seems like a very dangerous time uh, based on supply, even if inflation does come down. So, so, so I wouldn't necessarily be bearish because I, I think the Fed talks a good game even though they, they don't play a good game. They talk a good game and uh, they, they seem to have convinced investors that interest rates will come down uh, once we get close to 2%. I, I think that's a stretch. You know, given that deluge of supply, and the fact that you are going to need a lot more buyers to take that up at exactly the time when it seems like a lot of traditional foreign buyers of U.S. debt have, have stepped away. Do you think financial repression comes back into play? We're already seeing the Fed talk about higher capital rules for some of the banks, things like that. Is that a risk in your mind? I remember you talking about this way back in 2011, 2012. Well, I think it is all of the new uh, rules. The um, you know, in, in terms of the intermediate banks, uh, which followed on from uh, Silicon Valley Bank, the new rules and Schwab, by the way, uh, not to, if Schwab's out there. Uh, Chuck and I play golf once in a while, so uh, sorry about that. The banks have, have gone overboard in terms of duration. I mean, Schwab basically takes all all their money market instruments and not all, sorry, uh, but a lot, and puts it into long-term bonds, and that's how um, they've gotten caught, and that's how Silicon Valley got caught. And so, you know, the repression, uh, you know, hasn't necessarily, in terms of what I read, come in the form of duration, but it's come in the form of um, increased capital and increased debt. A lot of these intermediate banks have been ordered, or will be ordered, to to issue six or seven billion dollars worth of debt in order to absorb you know what happened to six to 12 months ago so I I, I think that's a that's an effect of, of what we have uh, we have a financial system that that's um, that's dependent upon asset prices going up if you if if you remember anything I said today we we have an asset we have a, an economy that's based on asset prices going up if they don't go up there are problems there are problems because there's so much debt and there's such high expectations in terms of pe ratios and the like that if this asset based economy which which is depends upon higher stock prices depends upon higher or relatively high bond prices it's it's precarious at some point not i'm not i'm not saying get out i'm just saying that uh, assets have to go up or else um, the economy will not do well since you mentioned duration how would you manage or hedge duration risk right now and you can't just say that you wouldn't take it on if i gave you a hundred dollars to invest in bonds 
how would you hedge that duration risk? You know, PIMCO was always successful. Most, most people didn't uh, realize it until the books came out. PIMCO was always a, a great believer in selling volatility. Uh, selling volatility has a, an alpha, pretty consistent alpha over time, momentum. It doesn't always work, obviously, when black swans appear, but momentum is like an insurance company. And so that's the way Buffett works. Buffett doesn't say that's the way it works, but that's the way it works. He takes that float and he sells volatility by investing in longer term stock options, et cetera, et cetera. I would, and what have I done? I'd, I would sell a put and a call on a, say a 10 year uh, treasury, the TY contract, TYZC3, uh, trades at around 109. You know, I, I, I just sell uh, 108 put, 110 call, you know, for 30 days and uh, the volatility is decent, not as high as it has been, but it's decent. And you just you just bring those premiums down to the bottom line as, lo as long as the market doesn't take off like a firecracker one way or the other. So Tracy, Tracy posed this hypothetical to you. It's like, okay, how, do you, how would you hedge this duration? But w listening to, like, I'm just wondering, like, why should anyone buy a bond? And the reason that, you know, you, as you said, like, at the, the long end is almost already priced in. Um, a sort of success from the Fed, like already pricing in a sort of good scenario. There's upside risk. There's this deluge of issuance. And unlike, say, for the last, at least the last 15 years going up until 2021 and longer, like we're not even getting these sort of like inverse correlation to equities in the portfolio. So you no longer get that sort of like beautiful 60-40 portfolio where something in your portfolio is green on the day and green on the quarter. Right. So should, is, why, why on a bond? Well, that's a good question. So say you buy a 10-year Apple or 10-year Amazon, uh, you know, at five and a quarter, plus or minus. Um, and this is, you know, I've been in this business a long time, and I've, I've been tax sensitive, but I haven't, I'm not a real estate guy. All, all my buddies at the, the country club are in real estate, and uh They've never paid a, a tax in, in their life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they think you're a fool for having paid know, taxes. So uh, I'm thinking about this, and, and so I've, I've paid a lot of taxes. So it's, so say you earned uh, five and a half from an Amazon tenure, um, and say you live in California or New York, just say. So that's a 15% hook right there, and the federal uh, is probably 40% plus or minus, uh, depending upon what your bracket is. So... So take it up to 55. So the government takes 55 of the 550, and 55 times 550, 55, five, uh, it's probably like uh, six, um, well, 55 times 55 is, uh, it's like 625, whatever. You start to lose it when you're 79. <laughs> anyway, so the, the government's taking like, 55% right away. And say say you're trying to build an estate, uh, lead something for your grandkids, and yeah, you can set up a trust, et cetera, et cetera, but that costs money too. But but uh, the estate tax is 40%, and so they, so if you got 45 left and you got 40% on the estate tax, that's 16, 17%, and so you're, you're basically up to 70% that the government takes. The government takes 70% of your money and you get 30%. And so why, why would you risk 100% of your money for a 30% payoff at five and a half? I, it doesn't make any sense and it didn't make, it certainly didn't make any sense two years ago or a year and a half ago when interest rates were zero. So I, I, you gotta beat the tax man in one form or another. I'm not a pro at that. You know, go buy a, go buy an office building in New York, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> um, I've I heard mean, they have their own problems, the yeah. office buildings in New York. Just they have some few. other issues. Yeah. Uh, Bill, I, you kind of alluded to this, but you're managing your own money oh, yeah. now, and you're invested in a lot of different things, so stocks, bonds, MLPs. What's your favorite thing to trade now? Well, the best idea, unfortunately, uh, you know, oil is... Uh, at a cyclical peak, maybe it goes higher. I hope it does. Um, but um, there's master limited partnerships, mainly in uh, the oil and gas pipeline areas. At some point, 
10, 15 years ago, Congress, somebody paid off uh, a congressman and, and he inserted it into a bill. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> so MLPs, um, you know, basically are partnerships, just like real estate. It's the way, it's a way to get even with your real estate golf buddies. And so w what it is, is that you don't pay any taxes until you sell it. Okay, just like real estate, they don't pay any taxes. Even when they, even when real estate guys sell it, they transfer it to another property, they don't pay any taxes. They don't pay taxes ever. Anyway, so these MLPs, and there are about six or seven or eight of them, they trade pretty frequently. The largest one is called Energy Transfer. It's ET, it's the biggest in the country. It yields 9%, uh, and is that safe? It's been pretty steady, and is it dependent upon oil prices? Yeah, the, the price of the stock is affected to some extent if oil goes down. But So, uh, so I've got an MLP with energy transfer at 9% uh, yield that I don't pay taxes on until I sell it, um, or it pops into an estate, and I don't think you even uh, get taxed then. And all of these MLPs are at like 8, 8.5%, 9%. And, you know, that suggests that there's a lot of risk there, and I, I suppose there is. They've gone down, and they'll go down again. But uh, from a tax standpoint, I really like them, and I, about 40% of my portfolios are in oil and gas uh, MLPs. The other symbols would be uh, MMP, uh, Magellan, uh, MPLX, NS, uh, New Star. Uh, there's like eight of them. Just get your Bloomberg and hit RV for relative value, and it'll show you everything you should invest in. We asked Bill to give you tips on terminal <laughs> no, functions. No, I love, so I love, like, you know the exact price of the part of the Treasury futures curve yeah. where it's trading right now. It varies tickers in their yields of MLPs. So you're still, like, you're getting up at 5.30 every day still and uh, just as active as ever? Yeah, and it, I, I know that's sort of stupid, and, and people say smell the roses, and I... I think I do. My wife Amy and I play golf in the afternoon. That that that's smelling the roses. But in the morning, what else would I do? I'm not going to watch the morning talk shows. Uh, and so yeah, I get up and I, I watch uh, I watch the market, and uh, it's fun. You know, I I told you this backstage, but uh, there's a good definition of happiness. It's not the only definition. You've got plenty, I'm sure, but. One definition says you need someone to love, that's for sure. You need something to do and something to look forward to. And so for me, the market is something to do in the morning and something to look forward to. I look forward to NVIDIA and the earnings announcement. I, I'm hanging at 1 o'clock Pacific time just waiting for that <laughs> announcement. And, and I go, what are you doing? Why, why is this so important to you? But... I guess it is. I love that of the three things you need to be happy, the market is two of them for you. <laughs> All right. Well, on a related note, I remember in one of your very famous investment outlooks, you said that you didn't consider yourself a good trader. So fast forward many years, do you think you're a good trader now? Have you gotten better? No, I'm not a good trader. I'm as emotional as everybody else. And that's the, you can't be emotional. And, and so... You know, take Buffett. Buffett's not emotional. He's 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 funny. Uh, it, <laughs> he's a great personality, but I don't see him as an emotional person. He's just dried, dried in, in terms of how he looks at markets and, and the timing he looks at markets going forward. And so it kicks the emotion out of there. Yes, he's got to be right if he thinks the market's going up or going down. He's got to be right on a long term, but the emotion's out of there. And so uh, you know, I found for myself, I'm, I'm very emotional. If if I make a trade during a day and it closes lower than where I bought it, I, I'm not in a good mood. Amy knows that. <laughs> Sorry. But uh, I'm, not, I'm not a good trader. I am a good long-term secular investor. I, I have a good sense of what makes for markets in the long term.
What are three key considerations for financial services firms following the Biden administration's executive order on AI? Here are some thoughts from EY. In light of the White House executive order on the safe, secure, and trustworthy development and use of AI, financial services firms need to demonstrate three key capabilities. The first is that they have an enterprise-wide AI governance framework aligned to industry practices, including the NIST guidelines. Firms also need to be able to demonstrate effectiveness of this governance program. The second core capability is that institutions should have a holistic view of each AI asset, including all of its uses, impacts, risks, and controls. This holistic view naturally requires significant cross-functional coordination. Finally, institutions should be providing relevant reporting to boards and senior management around their AI use cases and effectiveness of their mitigating controls. Learn more at ey.com. Good song. The Johnny Carson theme, right? Hey, who wrote that? Skip, who do you think? It's your buddy. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Anka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. Hear about Michael Bublé's entrance into show business. And get business insight from Mark Burnett. Find out what scares my son-in-law, Jason Bateman. And discover the bragging rights that come with beating Michael Jordan at golf. Together, we know just about everything everybody including sitting presidents so join us as we ask the questions they've not been asked before tell it like it is and even sing a song or two this is our podcast and we're going to do it our way listen to our way on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts you mentioned do you say 40 percent by the way of your of what you in the MLPs these days? What are, what are the other big, or what's the other 60%? Like, what are the other long-term things that you want to bet on right now? Well, so, you know, so there's a lot of not, not totally safe arbitrage situations that, uh, that yield uh, 10 to 20%. I mean, uh, you all know the Microsoft Activision uh, deal that uh, probably in two weeks, will be approved by the, the UK. It trades at 92, they're, they're gonna pay 95, that's three points for a month. I think it's a month. Uh, and that's a 36% annualized return. There are others, there's, um, there's, there's a new one called Capri, which is, uh, Amy told me, told me about this, because they, they sell Jimmy Chews, I'm sure some of the women know Jimmy Choo's, um, Versace, and uh, there's there's one other company. Anyway, they're being acquired by a private entity. You know, there's a, a 10 to 15 percent discount uh, in a relatively safe industry. It's not a high tech industry, and there's there, there's quite a few others where a, a 5, 10, 15 percent return relative safety can can be achieved. And so I I look for those and. Uh, you know, it's better than 5% treasuries, but uh, certainly riskier as well. I don't know if anyone's ever asked you this before, but are, are you ever tempted by private credit? It seems to be all the rage at the moment. I've heard one person describe it as bonds without the liquidity issues of publicly traded debt. Is that something that interests you? Well, well no. Um, I, think, I think you'd be... Most of you would be surprised. I'm I'm not well connected. I, I never was well connected. I, I came into Newport. I sat at my desk. I had my investment committee. I had great people working with me, but I didn't know many people in New York or Chicago, um, and I don't know many people now. I wouldn't if I wanted to invest in private equity. I wouldn't know where to go. Um, so. Um, I'd say no. <laughs> <laughs> so extremely plugged in to random like merger arbitrage opportunities, but don't know all the fancy people with their private deals. Let's talk about a few other topics that are sort of in the news. A lot of interest these days in China and whether there's like going to be a sustained slowdown there. But I feel like, you know, there are certain things that people talk about, like 
every 10 years and people have been warning that their model is going to uh, implode and it's like a permanent thing. Does it, having followed these things for years, does it feel like there's something different going on globally or in China in particular? Yeah, certainly in China. I'd, um, you know, at PIMCO long ago, uh, we were on to this long ago, uh, 15, years, 15 years too early, but, but uh, China has, during the, their stretch of success, been successful because of investment, not because of consumption. They don't consume 70% of the economy like we do in the US. It's probably more like 40, 45. And the trick for China has been to increase that to be more like um, you know, Western economies and certainly the US. Um, where they've gone wrong is that they've reached the sort of a dead end with the, with their investment in housing and, and construction. Um, they've built bridges to nowhere uh, just to keep on building and to keep on investing and keep uh, jobs plentiful. And so it seems, uh, like I say, at, at PIMCO, we were talking about this 15 years ago and never happened, but it seems to be happening now. And so uh, the Chinese miracle of 6% growth, I mean, we would wonder how could that how could that happen? How could that keep on happening with with such a large economy? How could they grow at six or seven every year? And of course they did because they they kept on building condos and apartments that uh, are now vacant. So um, I, I think China's got a problem. They got a debt problem, uh, like most countries. Like the U.S. has a debt problem. Japan has a huge debt problem, but they've got a debt problem that they're going to have to figure out. And um, it always seemed to me that, uh, and this has been disproven because China has grown and grown and grown successfully and, and become a not just an economic force, but a geopolitical force. Um, but so they've grown and grown and grown, but uh, at, at some point, it, it seems you, you just can't grow at 6% anymore. And, and as we know, much of the world is, is dependent upon China and uh, not just their imports, but their exports as well. So I, I, I would think uh, the Chinese situation is a serious one and should be factored into to market expectations, but it, it isn't really. I mean, people... Investors, once you get on the AI train, and that's okay, I'm a believer in that, I don't know much about it, but I have a sense that it will improve productivity by a half or maybe 1% a year, that's big time stuff. But once you get on the AI train, uh, you know, you're looking for 20, 30, 40% hits. You know, what Peter Lynch used to say, uh, five bangers or 10 bangers. I never liked Peter Lynch. Um, <laughs> uh, mainly because uh, I thought he got out too early, and uh, people were always calling me the, the Peter Lynch of Bonds, and I said, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, we did China. We did AI. We did Peter Lynch. Should I just throw out some more topics and we you can just okay. yeah you could just opine on them um the fitch downgrade of the u.s mm. credit rating well, well i i think it reflects a certain reality not that the u.s could ever default in terms of not being able to cover its bills they they the Treasury just hands it off to the Fed, and the Fed prints money. The Fed, uh, like the helicopter that uh, Bernanke talked about. So I, I don't think that's realistic, but it is. The, the interruptions uh, are potentially realistic, as we know. Every time you know it comes up for approval, there's there's something that takes place, and so I, I think from the standpoint of a downgrade, a double A plus is probably appropriate. But it, it doesn't. There's no default ahead. It just Maybe it affects the the CDS spread a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I know I'm throwing out topic. Going back to bonds, though, for a second, and speaking to the bond king. If the if could we could there be another bond king in a bond bear market? Could there like or do you, or if you're in bonds and it's like, does it just mean you're going to have to like move somewhere else? Could there be a great bond manager at a time if we don't have a great bond bull market? See, I I. I, I sort of wrote this um, 
as I was leaving, what, which is a little, I don't know what the right adjective for that is, but uh, uh, I, I shouldn't have said it. But uh, I don't, uh, I think to be, to be a, I don't think there could be another Bond King because my reputation as Bond King was, first of all, made by fortune, but they printed a four-page article uh, with me standing on my head doing yoga, and I was the, uh, supposedly the Bond King. Uh, and that was good because it, it sold tickets, but I never, never really believed it. The minute you start believing it, you're cooked. The, the minute you start, uh, you're at the three-point line, you think you can't miss, you miss. And so I never really believed it, but you know, it was the function of a, of a bull market for 30 years that was growing and PIMCO was doing well and there were, there were too many names I could mention at PIMCO that, that, that helped me along. But you know, t today could there be a Bond King? I, the, the Bond Kings and Queens now are, are, are at the Fed. They rule, uh, they determine uh, for the most part which way interest rates are going, sometimes not so well. So, so they're in charge. And there, there was a time where, where yeah, PIMCO was, was pretty much uh, in it in 2009 and 8. And those were my most proud moments where, where PIMCO was called upon by the, the, the Treasury and by Warren Buffett to help save the economy. And, and we did that because we were sizable, we had a reputation, and the government let us support them uh, in, in the mortgage market, and we made money at the same time. But I don't think so. And, and certainly, so I, I nailed Peter Lynch, so I'll, I'll nail Jeff Gunlock because he, <laughs> he, he nailed me. Uh, when I was leaving PIMCO, I went up to his house and said, you know, maybe I could work with you. We could be two Bond Kings. And uh, he, uh, he, he trashed me for the next uh, 12 months, uh, you know, in the press and so on. Just, just terrible. Ter and I'm a sensitive guy. We'll get you both on stage to duke it out. A lot of folks catching strays in this interview. Anyway, but so, so if, John, if Jeff Gunlock is a Bond, first of all, to be a Bond king or queen, you need a kingdom. You need a kingdom. Okay, <laughs> PIMCO had $2 trillion. Okay, Double Lines got like $55 billion. Come on, come on. <laughs> That's no kingdom. That's like Latvia or, or Estonia, <laughs> whatever. Okay, and then his then look at his record for the last five, six, seven years. How does 60th percentile smack of a Bond King? It doesn't. <laughs> there, I got your back, Jeff. <laughs> Wow, okay. Keep going. I'm, try I'm trying to think where to take the conversation next. All right, I, I wanna ask a kind of serious question because we only have a few minutes left, but you've been very modest and humble, sort except for that last answer. <laughs> except for that last answer. You've sort of rejected parts of the Bond King story. You've attributed a lot of your success to the bull run in bonds. You still think you're not a great trader. How do you want people to think mm. of your legacy. When people think Bill Gross, what do you want them to think about? And I, I realize, you know, you've written your own book on yourself. Right. Uh, someone else has also <laughs> written a book about you. Like, what is, what is the legacy that you want? Hmm. Well, I, I think PIMCO was, and, and, and they're still close to two trillion, so they're, they're still an important uh, factor in the marketplace. But, but the the growing of Pemco from nothing. I mean that. I mean you you talk about careers where you're assisted by by this and by that and by parents and whatever. I, um, you know I had nothing, um, and Pemco had nothing, and so to go from nothing to to two trillion dollars. You, you know we we not only did something right, but we. We, we did something for our clients. I mean, PIMCO, the, the PIMCO mantra was the client comes first. And, and that sounds like bullshit, but it wasn't. We, we, we traded for clients, not for ourselves. 
And we knew, uh, or we thought, as it turned out, that if we traded for clients, that that would redound to our own benefit. And so I, I'm proud of the growth. I'm proud of our, uh, like I say, the financial crisis and, and uh, how we helped to, to uh, salvage uh, the economy during those days. I'm, I'm not so proud of you know, the aftermath with, uh, you know, PIMCO firing me, uh, still, I, I still don't have no idea. I have no idea why a company at $2 trillion would fire a person, and the next week they would lose $500 billion. I have no idea, uh, from a business standpoint, why that would happen. But for some reason, you know, they, they thought uh, my time was over, and, and I guess it was. But I'm certainly proud of of not just the growth, but the, the importance of, of PIMCO in the capital markets and, and helping people along. I, I mean, people come up to me. I don't know how they still recognize me at, at 79. I look in a mirror and I can't recognize myself. But they come up and they say, you know, you really helped me. That total return fund, it made, it made my portfolio. Uh, and, and so those are, those are the plaudits and the compliments that I, I really treasure the most. Bill Gross, incredible to chat with you here on the beach and really appreciate you uh, doing this interview with us. Yeah. This was a blast. Thank you. And um, I, I was going to say, like in, like in the U.S. Open, we're at 1 o'clock in the morning. We're Djokovic or Coco or whatever they say. And thanks for staying so late. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Well, that was our conversation with Bill Gross, the Bond King, recorded live at the Future Proof Conference on Huntington Beach. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me at The Stalwart. Follow Bill at real underscore Bill underscore Gross. Follow our producers, Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Arman and Dashiell Bennett at Dashbot. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. And for more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com slash Odd Lots. We have a blog, we post transcripts, and we have a weekly newsletter. And chat with fellow listeners 24-7 in the Discord, discord.gg slash oddlots. And if you enjoy oddlots, if you like it when we take the show on the road to the beach, then please leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening. It's Tracy Alloway and Jill Weisenthal. We are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast, and we want to tell you about a new podcast and video series you are not going to want to miss. The Deal, co-hosted by Yankees legend Alex Rodriguez. Every week, A-Rod and Bloomberg reporter Jason Kelly speak with big-time athletes, entertainers, and executives. Like Maria Sharapova, Michael Strahan, Derek Jeter, and more. The Deal takes you behind the scenes into the world of sports, media, and entertainment. And dives into the wins, losses, and lessons learned along the way. From Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals, you can listen to The Deal on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also watch it on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Originals on YouTube.